Smart Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Joshua Moore is a counselor at Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington, who specializes in neurofeedback and trauma. Reese Basimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in addictions, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation. Welcome to Smart Council. The Three Rules of Good. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources to providers and students on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Basimio. And I'm Joshua Moore. And we are here in the studio once again with Colin White-Pedo. Great to have you back here with us. Good to be here. Here we are on a very cold, wintry night, wishing for the sun. I'm wishing for the or sun. Or Christmas. <laughs> okay, fine. You can have your chair over there. I'll scrooge it over here. We set up Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving this year. <sighs> You're one of those people. Wow. Get away yep, from me. It's true. We did it. <laughs> when did I'm, they come down? I don't know. <laughs> Valentine's Day? No, not that late. But <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it on a little longer than is socially acceptable. It might be, it might be like mid-January right, or, or early January, somewhere in there. Okay. It's definitely not going to be down by New Year's, okay? Okay. <laughs> so for the listener who is just catching up with us, and we've also been uh, lagging and out of the studio for a little bit, um, briefly, what is everybody reading and who are you in the field? Uh, not necessarily in that order. And yes. My name is Joshua Moore, of course, and I'm reading some books on neurofeedback and uh, i think currently i'm i'm reading uh, a book on cognitive psychology and a book on ocd i've just got a couple of things that i'm dabbling on and off that sounds exciting you always read the most interesting stuff <laughs> well the, the some of them are yeah i think they are <laughs> they're, they're super smart anyway i'm reese and i have a private practice out in gresham where i focus on everything related to sex well not everything sex addiction porn addiction <laughs> uh gender sexuality uh, sexuality and faith crises, things like that. Um, and we have a lot of fun there. I am finally, finally reading uh, The Body Keeps the Score by St. Van der Kolk, which is really good. It's really great to pour over and really smart. And he's a great writer. And I also picked up, actually, my priest gave this to me and he asked me if I would read it and give, me, give him my opinion about it. The book Hold Me Tight by, I think it's by Sue Johnson. Uh-huh. But it's like emotions-focused therapy for lay people, okay. which... I'm learning a lot from it because it's just really great and really well written. And uh, now it's making me look at my relationship and like, oh my gosh, all these things, all these things. So <laughs> I would, I would def- I'm definitely going to recommend it as a really good one for, for people to read. So uh, that'd be cool. Colin, who are you and what are you reading? My name is Colin Whitepetto. I'm a licensed clinical social worker here working in the crisis field and in healthcare. I'm not reading anything right now. I wish I was. Uh, I've been wishing that for a long time. But I often will chew on things for months and months at a time. So tonight's topic is something I've been chewing on for several months. And then I have a few quotes that are hanging around my desk that I look at and I think about and I share with people. So I'll share a couple of those. One of them is, feelings are never wrong. They are natural sources of information. That's when I've been having a lot of fun thinking about validating people's feelings and seeing where they come from and trying to see what they're really representing. And then another one, this one's a little longer, um, between the stimulus and the response, there is space. And that space is our power to choose our response. 
in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And that's from Viktor Frankl. And so I've been thinking about that for myself and how I relate to my work and in my personal life, that space where I choose my response, hopefully wisely. That's so mindful of you. I try to be. (laughs) (laughs) I'd heard the Viktor Frankl quote at Mm -hmm. some point, and that's a good one. I think that comes up a lot in addictions counseling as, well, I think it comes up a lot, but in addictions counseling in particular, it's a lot of uh, recognizing, hey, I'm having an urge come up and a craving come up and I should do something healthier than I've done before and widening the gap in which you can make a different choice. And that's a lot of the bulk of what the therapy work ends up being is learning how to expand that gap and do things in it. Mm-hmm. So, good quote. Thanks for bringing it. You're welcome. Anyway, so here we are talking about the three rules of good. Now, what do we mean by that? So I will start with the the first one and we'll kind of, well, the three rules of how to treat people, or there's three levels of it, and we're going to kind of dialogue over what they are, what their potential implications and hangups might be related to counseling, and I guess just kind of talk about like how should we be treating people and why or why not, and how why we agree or disagree with each other. So all of that in 30 minutes or less. So the, we'll start with the golden rule. The golden rule being uh, treat others as you would have them treat you or do unto others as you would like them to do unto you, which originates with Jesus and has just infiltrated our culture. And it's something most people know. So taking this rule, uh, <laughs> what are the implications of the, there's two, there's two more variations. Well, coming I, I would hope so. that you would treat yourself really, really, really well. And that rule would be more functional. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like maybe that rule could be a problem if you don't have a lot of self-respect. Counselors who are bad at self-care. No, no, never. No, I'm sure that's not the, the intended implication. No. Although if we're looking for implications for the counseling field, counselors, students do take care of yourself, social workers yep. too. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard to do, but we should do it anyway. So strengths and weaknesses of the statement, uh, do unto others as they would, as you would have them do unto you. Well, this one I think implies a more reciprocal relationship than okay. usually happens in a counseling, in a counseling relationship where we're not necessarily expecting our clients to do anything unto us or right. reciprocate mm. what we do, except that we expect them to pay or we expect to be reimbursed for our work. We should be getting reimbursed for our work most of the time. Okay. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to like deny services because we can't get paid, at least not all the time. Right. I can think of some times when I've used this one in my counseling. For example, um, I was in a meeting once and I misspoke. I didn't have the history correct about one of my patients' medical charts, and that was offensive to them. Mm. And it took me realizing, yeah, I, I misspoke, I was wrong, and I apologized to them, which is how I would want someone to treat me if they had if there had been a misunderstanding. So I modeled how to apologize. And it was heartfelt, and I meant it, and it was reparative to our relationship, and they—they, they, my client did appreciate it. Um, and I feel like when I did that, it was fueled by some of my own values around how to apologize, which is a whole nother podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yes. That's there's fair. four parts to a good apology, I've learned. And yeah, I, I, that I think was fueled by the golden rule for me. Um, yes. Yeah. So it might be about having like a mutual respect. It can be in that moment where where you know where you you don't want to say something but you're like I would I would want them to say something to me or you know I would want I would want this to I would want this certain specific kind of process so you do it because it's an expression of respect 
does that make sense? Like an apology or, mm-hmm. um, and I've, I've seen situations before where even going into something that might be embarrassing or conflicting, but you would want somebody else to have taken that kind of initiative. So we, we do it because it's the kind of respect that we want. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that I think about it, I'm thinking about a couple interactions where essentially I wanted the clients to trust me. And yes. so when they asked me to trust them, I I opted to go with that. And okay. these were cases where mm. the clients were asking for some disclosure on my end about this thing or that thing. Uh, I, I once had a client ask me to you know let down my hair, which was in a bun at one point. And mm-hmm. at the time, it seemed the clinically appropriate thing to do. So I did. It was weird, but I did it. Um, <laughs> and it was the right move in that case, too, because the client trusted me a lot more after that. Mm-hmm. And uh, with a team client recently, too, they, they wanted to know something about me. Not terribly invasive, but in that case, trusting them by giving them a straightforward answer seemed to go a long way toward establishing some initial rapport, respect. Mm. And then from there so far, there's been more respect and more, more openness from this client toward me all as well. So, so I guess there's that dynamic of, uh, well, I guess, I guess this is essentially modeling in a way, like if I want them to model, if I want them to be trusting and open with me that I should be trusting and open with them. If I want them to be respectful to me and to others, I should be respectful of them. If I want them to be punctual, I should be punctual. Yeah. That's not something I had thought about with self-disclosure. That's something yeah. I usually do very limitly. And recently I was out of the office on vacation, which mm-hmm. was awesome. And of course I was asked explicitly if I was going to be on vacation for the amount of time I was gone. I think my client was concerned for me and my health. Mm-hmm thinking I might have been going to have a surgery or something like that. And and I disclosed. And I like it's a weird thing for me when I disclose because I do it so infrequently. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't think about it like that. And when I think about my relationship with my own therapist and kind of that dynamic, and it, it's interesting because it, it is like you were saying at the beginning, these relationships aren't necessarily reciprocal. So trying to apply something like this to that is challenging. Yeah, and I think I think there's definitely going to be some therapists that that they have you know some practices and beliefs, principles, or theories that they work with where disclosure might be quite a bit more limited. Where if someone's curious, you might use that as you know fodder for something learnable. Like you know, you're really curious about my hair. Tell me about that. What what are the feelings associated with my hair? You know, and you can you might break that down and and go a different direction with it. Um, but that might be moving into a different rule. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I would <laughs> take the conversation a whole a different way. Role, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Compared mm-hmm. to what mm-hmm. I think I know about object relations therapy, where mm-hmm. self-disclosure happens all the time or not. I mean, I, I, don't, I should not make it sound rampant, um, <laughs> but it, but it's, it has a much more comfortable space in mm-hmm. the process. I think mm-hmm. I don't know a whole lot about object relations therapy, but okay. I have a couple of good friends who are object relations therapists and they're really cool. So briefly, so that so that so that's the golden rule, and mm-hmm. the very brief diatribe about how that might uh, apply or imply towards counseling. And the listener is free to agree or disagree. Um, disagreements are fun because then we can talk about them, uh-huh. and maybe we'll make a podcast and dedicate it to you. Um, <laughs> Uh, which is a subtle plug for a listener. Do uh, do a rate and review and leave comments on our <laughs> podcast. That helps us get some airtime and also dialogue. And we'd like to meet you. So, uh-huh. but that tangent done. Um, what is the the second rule? So we have the the platinum rule. rule. Platinum rule. The platinum rule. Yeah, what is the platinum. platinum? The platinum rule is to treat other people how they would want to be treated. How they would want to be treated. That one how seems they more would complex. like to be that treated. That seems more complicated. <laughs> it does seem more complex. Yeah. Because 
you know, uh, different than the golden rule, not everybody wants to be treated the same way. And yeah. not everybody has the same goals. More healthy expectations. For sure, yeah. yes. More healthy boundaries. So, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this rule seems to acknowledge and allow space for people who are on different trajectories, different values, different worldviews, which in a professional context happens all of the, t- all of the time. Mm-hmm. And it's an important thing to remember. So, so, seem- so at first glance, it seems like there's a lot of value to something like the platinum rule mm-hmm. in a clinical setting. Carl and Josh, what do you see as being some other perks or risks uh, with this rule? Well, I think some of the perks are that we don't have an agenda. It's like we'll work within their framework, their agenda, what they want to do. You know, um, it's not clean by any stretch of the imagination, but but I tend to focus more towards uh, like collaborative problem solving and specifically motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing might take on the perspective of like, what do you want? Hmm. You know, and and in this case, it's talking about how your relationship is framed towards them. Um, and I don't know if it really applies to that as much, but but there's there's some elements to that where it's like I I'm going to work within you know what your goals are, what your what your needs are. So hmm. like like it could be as simple as like um, I try to keep a voice tone you know, at a certain point that is not stimulating to them, that is calming to them. I have the advantage mm. of having all this neuro and biofeedback equipment. So I can actually tell what my voice tone is doing to the nervous system. Mm. <laughs> so I, I can actually, <laughs> I can actually pick it, you know, that's um, amazing. You, can, you could choose to sit, you know, on their level or, you know, does that make sense? Like it's like choosing to engage with them in a way that is appreciated. Does that make sense? So there's mm. value there. Um, and some level, we all do that. I would think like we want to approach them, in a way that that is calming to them, mm-hmm. I think is that mm-hmm. fair. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and that we we do to some degree work with their goals. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that well, applies, but I yeah, think it might. <laughs> well, thinking person centered goals, thinking individualized treatment plans, even thinking our basic tools of empathy and attunement. It's basic. It's uh, recognizing what is the other person's experience, what are they feeling in the moment. How much can I align with them and support them from within their worldview, their perspective? Uh, and there's huge value to that. They may not have anyone advocating for them, or like our natural bent might be very counter and counterindicative, not good for for where they want to go. Um, so, and and besides that, just calling up the fact that uh, we're not the ones in therapy. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the ones doing their process and, you know, paying to achieve their own goals and not our goals. So it's important to recognize that. Mm-hmm. I think for me, when I first read about the platinum rule, it, it made me feel pretty insecure because it made me stop and relearn the golden rule because it was just, it's um, so much more nuanced. And what I took from it was this means I, I need to be an expert on how this stranger wants me to treat them. And if they don't communicate how they want me to treat them, I somehow have to figure that out. So like what you were saying was being able to measure your voice tone and the neurofeedback and things, really helpful tools. Um, it, it just, it, it felt like a taller task, I think, mm-hmm. when yeah. I first read about it, because I was like, wow, I just went spinning. Yeah. Um, everything from thinking about gift giving to how I interact in a counseling session to it, it just, it, it took, um, it's like empathy got injected in there somewhere. It's almost mm-hmm. like the golden rule got empathy injected into it for me. Um, cause you had to look at the other person's perspective, like you said, maybe different from your own and that can be challenging. So what are, so there's a lot of benefits yep. to this and yep. a lot of challenges and a lot <laughs> of beneficial challenges. 
What are some potential pitfalls or hazards related、uh, to this rule? Sometimes your clients are not going to want to do anything that makes them uncomfortable. Sometimes they're not going to want to do anything at all. Yeah, and and I mean, you have to sometimes cash in some rapport and and stretch them a little bit and push them a little bit. They may not appreciate or may not desire to be uncomfortable,、hmm. but. But that rule doesn't allow for, you know, intentional awkward silence,、mm-hmm. you know, or or, yeah, it doesn't allow for for some of the more uncomfortable moments in counseling that are productive. What's an example of one of those moments?、Uh, challenge them on something. Again, awkward silence by itself is something that they don't desire that you intentionally allow. Yeah,、um, we do that a lot. The pregnant silence, asking you know questions. Um, that they're uncomfortable answering, and they might be thinking in their head like, <laughs> "I wish he doesn't ask me about that." But you, you, you're not going to do that unless you believe you have the rapport to spend, because you're kind of spending through rapport when you do that. But but we do do that. We we build rapport kind of for the intended purpose of using it. <laughs>、mm. <laughs> you know, as a as a pattern thing,、um, inviting our clients or even gently nudging our clients. Into a state of just being uncomfortable, and for for some, you know, I'm thinking of you know at least one individual that I'm working with now, where they've been very open. They they don't like feeling feelings. Talking about feelings is uncomfortable. You know, damn those pesky feelings. But we kind of go there anyway. And at this point, we've talked about it. They know they need to and all that. But there's a way there where how they would want to be treated, how they would want to live, would probably be to not have to feel those feelings at all. Right. But. That's not actually the ultimate good for them, and that's not actually going to serve them. Whereas going into these uncomfortable spaces is actually going to be long term better for them. The other thing that comes to mind in thinking about、uh, limitations of the platinum rule has to do with any any sort of addictive compulsive behavior.、Mm. Um, you know, the the person in you know opiate withdrawals really wants their opiates back. Is that the best thing for them? In a lot of cases, it's not. You know,、yeah. giving them what they want, treating them how they want to be treated, giving them their way, is going to keep them in their cycle, keep them in their dysfunction, and potentially result in damage, harm to those around them. Right. Well, especially when you're thinking about like long-term damage or death, it's like there still has to be limits around the pre-contemplative like approach. You know what I mean? It's it's like、um, you know. We there are there are limits, you know. So I mean, pre-contemplative. Like I haven't done a lot of addictions work, but I, I've done a few years, you know,、um, working as a skill specialist back before I was a therapist, you know. And it was like in pre-contemplative, yeah, you you didn't make them do work that they didn't want to do, you know. In 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 a lot of contexts, I mean, like they weren't approaching, they weren't going to the same DBT groups, or they they weren't learning the same skills groups, you know. But we we weren't also we weren't also giving them their drugs. Yeah, you wouldn't. We wouldn't give them that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pre-contemplation is hard because yeah, you're not going to give them the same types、yeah. of work to do. On one sense, I mean, from from my perspective, I would I would almost prefer not to have a pre-contemplative client because oh yeah, it's just going to aggravate us both. The variable would be when they're mandated by a parent, by a spouse,、right. by a legal official,、uh, and then there's that awkward dynamic of well, you have to be well, here, you don't <laughs> want to be here, I don't want you to be well, here. Well, even in private practice, you get pre-contemplative people, but that's because somebody's making them come. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like、mm-hmm. somebody's making them come. Yeah, and, and, and they won't volunteer, you know, why they're there, but you can tell you're not here on your own volition. You know,、mm-hmm. I'm a private practice. I、right. wonder who made you come. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
you know it, yeah i don't know <laughs> but what are your thoughts colin yeah i agree with all of those um i i think i i attach to it so strongly because i like that it requires a degree of humility that mm -hmm. we can make a mistake and be wrong and so some of the way it's changed my practice is remembering to invite that i may be wrong into the interactions please correct yeah. me if i'm wrong because i may be and that's some of the hallmarks in motivational interviewing about doing an amplified reflection to see what am i going to get back if i try to make this a little bit stronger than i think it really is will they correct me and uncover some greater truth yeah so that i can learn and that they can be empowered that they discovered that on their own as well so I like that it leaves room um, for me when I interpreted it of like, okay, this means that I could be really wrong because I am not the expert on the other person. And yet I'm trying to operate from that mode. A practice that I can extrapolate out of what you just said, which I love, is this idea of uh, working to, to never take the client personally or to not take what the client says personally. Well, I'm thinking in the event... Like you were talking about the amplified reflection, you know, I'm offering, here's what I think, here's what I see, here's potentially an interpretation. But if I create a space where they can freely uh, push back against that, contradict me, or even say, hey, I did not like that, that did not work. Um, and to, to recognize that that's not uh, a reflection on you being a failure as a therapist or you being a bad person. It was just... Um, you know, you, you went one way and needed to go back and do another way. Um, but, but creating that space where you don't, you're not taking it personally, you're not offended and they can push back against that is really valuable. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we should all do that. So then the titanium rule, Titanium. how did we decide to articulate this? <laughs> uh, I think it was something along the lines of do unto others, what is their best and most ultimate good? Or something like that. Something like mm -hmm. that. Do what is ultimately best for them. Do what is ultimately best. Maybe like best. some sort of like, like, like good as in like duh, capital G truth to good, mm. you know, maybe, maybe more mm. like Kohlberg, you know, Kohlberg type five and six, you know, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Tap into you your know. universal principles and something like that. Yeah. Uh, the greater good. The gravity of capital G good. I don't know. Right. <laughs> the gravity. Yeah. The, the principle. I don't know. Yeah. The gravity good. The, the the level three Kohlberg stuff, right. the stage um, five and six. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I it, feel would be, like it would be stage five and six. Yeah. It comes over. It can yep. kind of eclipse the platinum rule in that way. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's an interesting one. Um, I don't know if I'm totally settled on it. Yeah, I don't know. If I'm total, <laughs> I don't know if I'm total, totally yeah. settled with it either, uh, especially in a professional context. Yep. Uh, if I were working within my my faith tradition with someone else of that faith tradition. Um, then it would factor in a little bit more smoothly yeah. as like, hey, we have right. both ascribed to this one thing and we both share this value so we can reference that value in and, 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 value and, I, and I, I agree referencing it, um, but it gets a little tricky because I think there's a difference between like a therapist and like maybe being the pastor or the priest because um, like even if they are bringing in their faith and it happens to be the same as yours. What if there are differences? Not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Unless you're doing aesthetics counseling, which I don't practice. No, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Which, yeah. And there, and the reality is that we're in, in a professional context. There's many, many, many more situations where there's not a shared yes. value framework or at least not a total one, or yeah. maybe there'll be, we'll share like, you know, one aspect out of 17 or something. Um, yeah. so 
Well, and I think there was a, an interesting situation a while back where I can use this as a, uh, an example because I've seen it many, many times, but where I do an intake and they said that they specifically came to me because they have heard about my faith background or, you know, there's just enough information out there that some people refer to me because of, you know, uh, some of those elements of disclosure that I've, that I've made or the degrees on my wall, for example, that are more evident. And you know, one of the questions I asked when seeing a couple is like, is this, you know, do you have egalitarian theology? Is there equal, you know, nature in the relationship? You know, it's a theological question. And sometimes the answer is yes. And that's not ultimately what's being practiced or what the belief is. You know what I mean? And, and what do you do? Well, do you critique their theology? <laughs> No, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that's where you can have a false sense of confidence, even thinking that you share a similar culture. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because as much as, you know, some, some labels like, um, like, like the Christian label, for example, yeah. it's, it's a really big label and mm-hmm. there's so many subsets <laughs> within there. It's, it's very possible for two <laughs> yeah. people to have the same label and actually right. have completely different beliefs about right. the same things. And so it's, it's not at all. We, sometimes you know if we're using the terms that mean the same thing, right? Like so terms are different. Yeah, sometimes. It's not at all safe to assume that you can, that mm-hmm. you have a shared reference point. Right. So that's, so, that's a problem. That's a problem. Yeah. And, and so we've been if you're, you going know, down this rabbit trail of, of spiritual integration, which is interesting. We'll do more of it later. Right. But this rule, I think more specifically talks about what do you do when you enter a room with someone who has a different belief system than you do, which you know, everyone will run into that, whether you are in a particular faith tradition or not, whether whatever your political leanings are, you're going to run into situations where your idea of the greater good is maybe the very, very opposed to the other person's idea of the greater good. What do you do in those situations? Yeah, I like how you mentioned culture. Yes. Uh, and that lens in thinking about um, it, it. To me, the titanium is this higher level than mm-hmm. the platinum because it's not just, okay, what nuanced interpretation do I have of the cultures that I'm a part of and the labels I carry and I'm proud to carry? There's this umbrella that is maybe pluralized beyond mm-hmm. me that I think kind of taps into culture on the titanium level. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah, I, I don't know quite how to say it. Um, it, it, feels, it feels more like a general projection and like I'm having to... Um, get uh, acquainted with something that maybe I don't, it's not in my belief or value system. And I know this is something that's higher up Yeah, and I'm going to either support it or I'm not. Well, um, you got my, you got my wheels turning a little bit now. I'm thinking a little bit more three-dimensionally about it because it might be about like how you're oriented, like in your thought process, like what are you aiming at? What are you, what are you actually focused on? When you say orienting, I'm referring to, you know, almost like a neurological term. Like, what is your brain aiming at? And, and their brain processes very small amount of information that it's granted, you know, even by the optic nerve, it's like 2% of the information actually gets processed by the brain. And, and so how does the brain choose the 2%? It's based on what you are looking for. Mm. And that's a problem. Okay, that's a huge problem because we don't see primarily based on the stimulus in front of us. We see primarily based on what we are anticipating. Mm. based on what we are wanting to see yes Yes. that's a huge issue which means that how you're orienting if i'm orienting towards trying to understand what they want or trying to understand what i might want that's different or trying to understand you know it as truth that the the orienting ourselves towards truth trying to get that two percent that we're taking in to be aiming at what is their ultimate good above my own agenda and above their agenda 
um, that that may not be flawless, but, but I'm starting to come around and go like, Oh wait, I get it. You know, seeing it from a neurological perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I do like the titanium model actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. cause, cause you're going to see what you're looking for. So, so what's, what are you looking for? Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. what, that's the basic question. Yeah. Um, well, well if, if we're going to go there, I mean, that seems yeah. <laughs> to mean it really is important then that you as a therapist be a morally sound, healthy, virtuous, you know, kind person. Because if you are looking for flaws, you're going to well, find well, flaws. And, and, but. And yeah, that, that's very true. Um, but we can also get trapped up there because if we're thinking about like, like if I'm thinking about my morals, I'm thinking about my what I think my lifestyle should be. Yeah. You're, you're not orienting yourselves towards necessarily you're more, you maybe you might be accidentally orienting yourselves more towards yourself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So I'm assuming, but, but how do you orient yourself towards like a principled truth? Does that make sense? And I don't know how to answer that fully. Can you ask the question again in a different way? <laughs> um, if I'm orienting myself towards a greater truth, how do I make sure that I'm not aiming for my greater truth? Yeah. Uh, and, and, yes. I, and I'm saying like, yes, yeah. I believe and hope. And of course I believe that my greater truth, I have a bias. I genuinely believe that it's more accurate. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But, 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 but well, right. where, where are you crossing the line from just falling back on the platinum rule? It's or true. Falling, falling back on the, I mean, the golden rule. It's true. And I'll agree too. I mean, from within my belief system, I, I have a belief and I have a, a, a big hope that I'm right about a lot of things right. and that my, you know, the so, truths so, I hold are good, right. but I don't know. And I may be wrong. And even <laughs> if, even if I am right, I yeah. still understand it very poorly very, in a very limited way. And there's a lot of ways where I'm right. not going to apply that truth adequately at all. So, right. so I, I'm actually feeling less comfortable with this as a way to, to approach therapy in that, mm. um, I, again, given yeah. that it's, it's a professional, it's a clinical setting, um, I'm going to lean the direction of our, well, I'm going to mostly lean the direction of our, our, our greater good right. our, does, doesn't really have a very big place in the therapy room, uh, most of the, sort of, but then, <laughs> I mean... Obviously, it's it's not a, not at all appropriate to to be imposing a belief on on, on the client or right, to be trying right. to direct or coerce them into a particular belief. But on the other hand, nor is it completely safe or good for the therapist to be a non person in the right. room either. Well, well I kind of think that if we if we're aiming for a principled truth, if we're trying to orient ourselves towards a principled truth, we wouldn't have personal beliefs without believing that that is what a person that 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 that, that, that when people find truth it, it we our belief is that it would probably look like this otherwise we wouldn't believe it you know what i mean like mm. like if you believe that there's any if there's any solid ground at all uh, as far as understanding you know the physics of health or spirituality or um you know uh your wholeness you know if you have any beliefs around that that are a bias you you're going to try to help and and lead your client to truth and you're probably going to expect to some degree that it it looks you know um i don't know how to explain this that's you're not aiming at your yours but i think i think a lot of us like would almost expect that that there'll be similarities between like what we found and what our clients might stumble upon mm-hmm. or elements they might come across in one source otherwise we wouldn't believe them does mm-hmm. that make sense yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> so, but, but I'm not saying that's not an excuse to aim after your own agenda. 
that, that that's not you, you can't use that as an excuse does that make sense <laughs> yeah yeah I, I like when you said similarities because when i think about it um you know the things that i found in my life that are my truth i don't expect someone else to share that um if they tell me hey this is my truth i say that that is your truth um and i i leave it there and and it may look very different than mine uh and i don't think of it as invalid um so well, I mean, I can see that. he might, he yeah. might, he might, but, but, but not like on a, maybe a spiritual, uh, you know, I mean, well, well, I don't know. <laughs> and, and, and I, th- and I want to come up with some crazy stuff. They <laughs> but, do. And I'm one to say, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but here's where it's important to recognize too. I mean, we're not just talking spirituality. Right. Either. Yeah. Course. That's yeah. right. There's I think that's a very health. different yeah. topic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, spirituality factors in, but right, of you course. Know, politics factor in, you know, healthcare, you well, know, that's, factors that's in. A good definitions example. of health, definitions yeah. of pathology factor in. True. So I was um, thinking about medicine with it. Um, in particular with the titanium roll around end of life care. And when someone is not able to maybe, you know, say their true platinum rule. So when I think about that, that analogy, um, say if someone's towards the end of their life, their platinum rule is I don't want to die. Their titanium rule is I don't want to live a life that I'm going to be hooked up to machines and I'm not communicating that to you. But I feel when I think about it like that, I think that there's almost like this sliver of platinum that's the foundation of titanium. It's like it, it goes up and it still informs around that person's value system, but it may not, um, that platinum rule that's on top of that sliver may look very different. So as like a medical professional, you're trying to make these huge decisions around someone's life, if it's going to end or not, or what you're going to do to help prolong suffering or, you know, stop the suffering or whatever. And they're not able to tell you or what they tell you, you know, isn't what they really feel. And then you're wearing those shoes of the expert in someone else's life and what they're really valuing in that moment, which I, I think can change. I think values and when we're put in situations can be so transient that it becomes even more challenging to, to practice these because all of a sudden what you've built or the rapport and what you've learned about this person changes on a dime in a new context. And how do you switch and accommodate for that? But, and that's where, again, where I think it's really essential to be a healthy, morally sound person because specific situations like, what do I do with this person's end of life care? I think you're still going to want to, you're still going to hopefully be referencing uh, a, a universal good principle. And we can maybe, I guess, uh, I guess we, at least we three are operating under the assumption that there are universal good principles that exist. You know, maybe some people would disagree with us and we'd have to respect that. But, but yeah, I mean, that, that would be how we would navigate those specific situations is having, having a sense of the good somewhere and different ideas of, you know, what that is or how, how to practice it. But if there were no good to reference then, or, or if there were good to reference and not everybody referenced it in the same way, then that would um, I guess I could get a little bit murky, but I, but I feel like it would be like, I wouldn't want just anyone making that call over me and my end of life care. I would want someone who was, you know, at least going to be, you know, you know, deliberate, cautious, you know, inquisitive, you know, uh, you know, very, very mindful about a lot of things. Uh, not somebody who is just kind of careless, you know, what's going to be, you know, the cheapest solution. So, so I guess there's a difference there. One of the things you said something a little while ago, Colin, that made me think about how this would filter into to a clinical setting. And there's there's the specific situations we might have to navigate, specific decisions we might have to make or walk with a client as they make. 
But one really essential thing to, to remember, just as we are adopting an approach and a manner of how we regard our clients is to recognize that we have our different belief systems, but to, to look at the other person and, and really recognize they recognize that they, they truly do believe what they believe and not in a vacuum. They have come to their beliefs through journey, through story, through some deliberation or through some, you know, conditioning, but whatever their, whatever their experience is to how they've come to their view, we need to recognize that they, they really truly do hold that view and, and respect them for that and be able to respect, you know, the journey they've been on, respect them as a person and not, I don't know, not, not, not criticize them for having that view or not judging them for having that view and not invalidate that as saying, oh, you just have a, you just have a mental disorder. You just had a mental breakdown. Your, your view is invalid. You don't really believe that those situations could be really minimizing, really damaging, but really recognizing you have your view. You've come to your view through however much life experience you have, just as I have my view out of whatever life experience I've had. And now we're sitting with those two views together and we need to work it out some way. And if we can model respecting each other's view, making space for each other's view, I guess that's the golden rule leaking back in again, um, then we could have a productive dialogue. And productive you can apply that model to like pre-contemplative addictions. Yeah, yeah. Somebody's locked up in your facility and, you know, they don't want to be here and there's nothing wrong and, you know, their life is working fine, you know, and you're like, okay, well, <laughs> yeah, how long though? You know, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of respecting where they're at. You're respecting their beliefs about their situation and their behavior. Um, but you're trying to, it sounds like, apply all three rules. Or it seems like... Mm-hmm. The capacity to mm-hmm. to interchangeably draw on yeah. all three of them at different times in different places. Um, go figure. <laughs> a flexible <Yeah>. approach. <laughs> Who would have thunk? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that I'm not sure. Like you know, it's it's an interesting model to present. You know, that do we do we shift back and forth? Do we integrate all three? You know, it's mm-hmm. like well, it's a little bit. I mean, I could see a lot of different perspectives mm-hmm. on it because it's interesting. Like you might be able to argue for a that there's, you know, some rules could be elevated out of the others, but, but you change the scenario and I change my opinion a little bit, you know, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. intriguing. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I suppose at the end of the day, it's really important for us to just remember to be mindful of our context of our mental processes to, to really be able to, to practice metacognition with how we're thinking, how we're believing, how we're reacting, how, we are how our how our bodies and emotions are responding to the clients in our rooms, especially when there's a a dramatic uh, worldview value difference. And um, you know, I mean, here's where we talk about you know being aware of our biases and our prejudices and the stereotypes we hold in our heads, uh, the agendas we have um, that we try to set at the door, but sometimes we're not able to. Um, there, there's all these things to be aware of because you know we're we the we the professionals we're we're humans coming into the room and we bring all of the stuff with us just as the client brings all of the stuff with us too and to forget about that or to be careless about it or to be unaware unmindful reckless with this would be to cause damage whereas to be mindful aware of all of these things uh, again can become the platform for having productive conversations. So any other thoughts on this, on any of these three? I I have so enjoyed thinking about it for so many months. And um, 
how it, it causes me to put a mirror up and think about how I'm affecting other people, both personally, professionally, amongst my colleagues and amongst my clients. And, and really, like you said, examine where am I coming from? Where, where did that come from? And just going multi-level with that, picking that all apart and also saying, how good of a job am I doing? If I, if we were to have like a Q and a myself and this other person I'm interacting with, how many times would I get the a right? You know, how many, how well do I really know this person? How well am I serving them in the way that they want to be served ultimately, which is kind of that titanium piece, the ultimate part, you know, that we've called to guide people towards these goals. And maybe it's not those, you know, um, surface level things that come up along the way and we have to push back or correct someone or, and also hold the space for humility that maybe the course has changed and accept that willingly. Maybe they, they changed where they wanted to go. Maybe they don't have that goal anymore. And we can make mistakes. And we can make mistakes. And that doesn't affect my sense of professional identity as far as am I am I competent? Did I do right? You know, well, we didn't end up at the end of their goal. You know, we set this out at the beginning and we're not there. And that insecurity that can come up with it. Mm -hmm. So we should put out there that uh, none of us three wrote any of these three, all of these three, (laughs) all of these three rules were developed by someone else, uh, someone smarter than us. Uh, So if the listener reader wanted to read or learn more about any of these, um, do we have places we could direct them? Yes, I mean, we do. Yeah, I mean, Google okay. Google produces a lot. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure if Google produces anything. Uh, well, well, and I know I googled all of these. Uh, Google Google for well, yeah, it's a platform. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Write in the comments, and we'll direct you where to go. Okay, okay. Yeah, write in the comments. There's some incentive. There we go. Yeah. If you want to know where we found these, yeah, write in the comments. Um, yeah, so we will. Yeah. Well, Adrian, I, I, I personally look forward to potentially having you back to talk about, you said apologies. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. So, you know, as soon as, as, soon as you're, you're willing to tolerate <laughs> us, uh, I, I was intrigued by that. Uh, uh, and it's always nice to have you on call and you, you always do a good job and, and we appreciate you and we'll, we'd love to have you back yes. as soon as you're willing to tolerate us. All right. We'd love to hear about apologies. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Right. Pleasure to be here. Yes. Uh, so thank you listener for following us and please do continue to follow us and leave us some Questions, comments, even unhappy comments. If you uh, disagree with us, that's still productive conversation and we'll take it. And uh, we will be back with more Smart Council. We love your feedback. So let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at, at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at, at Smart Council 601. And you can email your questions to Smart Council Podcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore.